Good morning, church. My name is Roman Wally, and I'm the college pastor here at Grace. Um, on that note, for those of you students who are here for the first time for this summer, welcome. We're actually getting kicked off for college ministry tonight. Uh, the college ministry here at Grace is called Crosspoint. It's going to be at 6 p.m. right across the street in the chapel. We're going to have some pizza. We're going to have some time to fellowship. And then what we're going to do is we're actually going to sit down and dig into the book of James together. And so whether you're new or maybe you haven't really plugged in yet, tonight is the night to do that. Those of you who've been here, welcome back. Ready to get going, okay? Uh, but to the topic for this morning, I'm glad to be here. We're going to be going through Titus 2 this morning. Um, and it's been a great mix of guys who've gotten to teach so far and will continue to teach as we go through the book of Titus. But I want to just give you the point of Titus 2 right from the beginning. The main point of Titus 2 is that godly living flows from being grasped by God's grace. If you have genuinely been grasped by God's grace, godly living will result. That is the necessary connection of Christian faith, and this is the point of Titus 2. This is what we're going to see this morning. This is a truth, this is a reality that I have experienced personally. It's the reason why I'm still following Jesus to this day. Uh, you see, I grew up in the Bible Belt, which is southern United States, right? This is the place of the country where we have churches all over, where we have billboards with Bible verses on them, where we can play games about what's the best church sign that you see as you drive through small towns, right? Um, everybody's like combating for the best saying. Um, so I grew up in the Bible Belt, and I was familiar with church culture. I was raised going to church week after week. And yet, and some of you have experienced this, some of you know this, you can do that without any genuine relationship with Christ, any genuine faith in the gospel. Because of that, I had absolutely no life change. If you walked up to me and you asked me, are you a Christian? I would have said, yeah, sure. But I would have no evidence to show you, to point to, to say, Jesus has changed my life. You see, what was really shaping my life by the time that I was in high school, whenever I was asking those questions, was sexual sin. Whenever I was about seven or eight, I was introduced to pornography for the first time. And by the time I was in early middle school, it was regularly accessible, and that's whenever its claws really began to sink into my life. By the time I was midway through high school, it was ruling me. Like to the point where I felt like I was going to go crazy. I didn't have control over my thoughts. The way that I would look at women was always disgusting. So early on, it was like ice cream. It was enjoyable. I thought, maybe I shouldn't eat this all the time, but it's fun. It feels good. And so I'm going to go ahead and do this. By the time I was in middle of high school, it was like water to me. It was that necessary. And yet it wasn't pure. It wasn't refreshing. It wasn't life-giving. It was brackish, bitter, poison water that I was addicted to. And I wanted desperately to be free from it. And yet every oath I'd make, every promise I'd make, every effort I'd make to try to get out of it, right back into it immediately. And it wasn't until the first year that I was here that I was introduced to the story of Jesus. I was introduced to this amazing concept of reading the Word of God. <laughs> and I began to read the story of Jesus and it was this crazy process of realizing after a couple months, I actually believe in this man. I actually trust 
this one who says he can rescue me from my sins. And the way that I really saw that that was true for me was how my life changed. I woke up one day, I kid you not, I woke up one day and I realized for about two weeks I had not had a vile sexual thought, I had not looked at pornography, and I had not even had the desire to. What was on my mind was living in obedience to God and enjoying my daily life. And that was totally different for me. Now I'll tell you, it's not like that was the marker point of which I walked forward in perfection. It's not like I never struggled. It's not like I never had difficulties after that. It was a messy road, and I made a ton of mistakes, and I'm still susceptible to those temptations, and yet what changed at that point because of Christ was that it was a struggle now. I had a fighting chance. By the power of the Spirit of God, there was a different path available to me, and I could walk in that inconsistency. True faith in Jesus, being grasped by God's grace, necessarily flows into godly living. You think about it like this with an image. Faith in Jesus is like a fount or wellspring, and the life-giving pure waters that flow forward from that fount is godly living. These two things go together in Scripture. These two things must go together in our lives. And so if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Titus. We're going to look at chapter 2. We're going to see how God's grace transforms us to lead godly lives. If we have faith in God's grace through Christ, that will manifest in a life that's different. So what we're going to look at is we're going to just read this whole text, kind of get the big picture, and then I'm going to break it down into pieces. But we're not going to project it up on the screen, so if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one out of the pew back in front of you. Open up to Titus chapter 2, and I'm going to read it aloud for us. Paul says this to Titus. But as for you, teach what accords or what fits with sound or healthy doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded or sober, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God or the gospel may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. In you, Titus, you show yourself in all respects to be a model or an example of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves, You are to be submissive to your masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering or stealing, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Four, this is why to live this way. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce or reject ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us or set us free from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession 
who are zealous for good works. You, Titus, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Titus chapter 2. So these are Paul's instructions to Titus. Paul is a missionary pastor. He plants churches, and then what he does is he moves on as he sets up his disciples to lead those churches that he leaves behind so that they might grow and flourish. In chapter 1, what he's done is he's telling Titus, in the church in Crete, I want you to set up elders, godly leadership, who will be able to shepherd the flock of God, care for God's people, and also respond to false teachers. In chapter 1, what he does is he says, two things are always connected with false teachers. You have false doctrine, things that are not true, and sinful living. Those are always connected, and that's what he talks about in chapter 1. So in chapter 2, he turns to Titus and he says, you, as you teach the church, as you train your elders, this is what you're to do, to teach true doctrine and godly living that fits with it. So we're going to see this command in the first verse and the last verse. Take a look at verse 1. Paul says to Titus, As for you, teach what accords or what fits with sound doctrine. Here, Paul is telling Titus to authoritatively teach that godly living flows from true faith. Whenever he talks about sound doctrine, he's talking about the message of the apostles about who Jesus was. That all of human history is about God rescuing his creation. He's done this in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And believers are called to wait faithfully, to live pure, upright lives as they wait for Jesus' return to renew all things. This is sound doctrine. Titus is to teach what fits with, what accords with, what lines up with the sound doctrine, which is godly living. That's what verses 2 through 10 are all about. Titus is to talk to different groups within God's household, different groups within the church, and say, this is the pathway for you to walk in. This is what it looks like to live a godly, upright, self-controlled life because of the work of Christ. And in verses 11 through 14, he makes clear what that sound doctrine is. He talks about what Jesus has done and how that has changed God's people. This is what we see in the New Testament, in this text, all throughout the Bible, you see that right belief and right practice are always connected. The technical terms would be orthodoxy flows into orthopraxy. Right belief flows into right living. Like we've said before, this is the fount is sound doctrine, godly truth, and what flows from it that gives life is godly living. Titus is to not only teach these things, but he's to encourage God's people. Look at verse 15. He says, declare these things, both sound doctrine and godly living. Exhort, which is to encourage or to say, point out the right path and call people to walk in it. Encourage the people of God to live faithfully. And then secondly, rebuke with all authority. Make corrections. Don't be fearful of saying you're in error. You're walking towards destruction. Repent and walk in this path. Very simply put, this is the role of a pastor. With love and with compassion and with a genuine heart, a pastor is to point out the right path and invite and encourage and call God's people to walk this way. Not because they have it all together, not because they know everything, not because they're perfect, but because the word of God has laid that path for us. And a pastor is a shepherd and just says, this is where we're going to go together. And then as a person who's also prone to sin, who knows what it's like to be a human being, and the struggles and the difficulties 
and the failures that go along with it, a pastor is to boldly step forward and say, don't walk in this path. You're in error, and it will destroy you if you continue this way. Repent, walk in this path. This is what Paul tells Titus to do. This is his role as a shepherd in God's church at Crete. He is to authoritatively teach that godly living flows from true faith. And so here's what I want to do. I want to look at the end first. I want to look at sound doctrine. I want to look at the godly teaching that Paul discusses. And then what we're going to do is get to the godly living that flows from that sound doctrine. So we're going to look at verses 11 through 14 first. And we're going to see that God's grace in Jesus transforms believers. If it is truly God's grace that you have received, it will transform you. God's grace transforms believers. Take a look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. This is past tense. It has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Paul summarizes the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus with this one simple phrase, the grace of God. Grace, biblically speaking, is the unmerited favor of God. God freely stepping in and pouring out kindness and goodness and healing mercy on people who trust in Christ. The grace of God has appeared. It's showed up on the world stage in human history, in the life, the death, and the resurrection of of Christ. God's free, unmerited favor has been shown clearly through Jesus. We see that the effect of it is that it's bringing salvation for all people. Paul is not saying here that this is applied salvation to all people because Christ has done his work that all people necessarily will be saved regardless of whether they trust him or not. That's not what Paul is saying. What he's saying is that it's available for all people. Christ has come, he has appeared, he has shown up, he has worked salvation, and he has set it forward so that all might come who would trust him and receive and find life eternal. This is the grace of God. It's through Christ, and it's for all who would believe, Jew and Gentile, as well as the rest. And then in verse 14, he defines his grace just a little bit more. He says, Jesus Christ is the one who gave himself for us to redeem us or to set us free from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He defines it as Christ laying down his life, giving himself in order to redeem us, in order to set us free. This language is actually hearkening back to the Old Testament. So the greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament is the event of the Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to at least read the first 19 chapters because you'll make it that far. Um, It's the story of God's salvation for his people. It's what they always look back to. If Jews had a gospel, it was the story of the Exodus. And what God did is that as his people Israel are enslaved in Egypt, as they're being oppressed, as the Egyptians are working out genocide against these people that they've enslaved, God hears their cry, and God steps in and intervenes, and he judges wicked wicked evildoers, and he rescues his people. He frees them. He redeems them from enslavement to Egypt, and he makes them his own people. He says, I will be your God. You will be my people, and you will live in this world as a people who show what it's like to live with God. You will be a blessing to the nations. This language is exactly what Paul's drawing on here. Take a look. Verse 14, Christ gave himself to redeem us, except for we're not enslaved to Egypt, we were enslaved to lawlessness, to sin. 
Christ's death has freed us from that, has made us God's pure people, and now we are zealous for good works. We are a people who are placed in this world by the work of Christ to be a blessing to those around us. The same way that God has acted in the Old Testament is the same way that he has acted in Christ. This is the act of salvation in Christ. This is the grace of God. We've been set free from enslavement to disobedience, to lawlessness, to sin that leads to death, and we've been made God's people. And we've given a role, a purpose here, to do good works, to be a blessing to people around us. God's grace transforms believers. We see this result. Take a look at verse 12. The result of God's grace showing up is that it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. What is the result of God's grace? It's to teach us, to train us, to live a repentant life. What is repentance? It's simply turning from sin to God. It's turning from sin to obedience to a father who loves you. This is how Paul says it. God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We turn away from those things. We reject those things whenever we trust in Christ. And then continually as we move forward, we turn from it. And we turn to a righteous life, which he describes as self-controlled, upright, and godly. Self-controlled in my own behavior, I am ordering my path in a way that is right and good. Upright in my relationships with people, I am treating others in a way that is righteous and good and beneficial to them. And then godly, I am submitting myself to God, I'm living in obedience to him. This is the transformation that God's grace brings about. This is what it trains us to do, to reject the old way, to embrace the new way. We don't just get forgiven. We're not just forgiven the penalty of sin. We are rescued from the power of sin into a new identity and a new way of life. It's not just that I believed in Jesus and so now I get out of hell whenever I go, die and go to heaven. It's that now God has given me a new identity. He's given me a new purpose and there's fruit to be born in my life. God's grace shows itself through godly living. We see this Also in verse 14, what we just read, Christ redeemed us from a life of lawlessness, from enslavement to sin, so that we might be a pure people devoted to good works. This transformation is what grace works in us. And then Christians have a new end goal. Look at verse 13. As they reject sin, as they embrace righteousness, they are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the ultimate hope, the ultimate end goal, as we continually reject sin, as we continually embrace righteousness and walk in faithfulness, is that we're looking forward to the day when our God and Savior returns, Christ himself, and he executes judgment and justice upon the earth, and he renews all things. And we see him face to face, and we have peace and wholeness in his presence. This is the new end goal of Christians. What we see in verses 11 through 14 is that God's grace transforms believers. This is not just a religious idea. These are not just religious facts about Jesus. It's not just that he died for my sins, that he raised again, that he is God in flesh, and now I get to go to heaven instead of hell at the end. It's a life-transforming relationship with Christ 
that teaches us to reject the old way and embrace a totally new way. If we have received God's grace, it will manifest in a transformed life. So you might be thinking, okay, so that's a lot of theology there, bud. What does this look like practically? Well, I'm glad you asked that because in verses 2 through 10, he's going to get really straightforward, really practical. He's going to say a transformed life is a godly life. One who's received God's grace lives a godly life. And he's going to tell Titus to instruct five different groups of people, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and slaves. Okay, so he's going to work through this list. Let's pick it up in verse 2 with older men. This is the godly life, a snapshot of the godly life for older men. They are to be sober-minded or sober, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. That first word there, your translation, like my translation, might read sober-minded. I think the better translation is actually just sober that they're not given over to drunkenness and intoxication. This is a problem that is really all throughout history and all human cultures. We know this, but apparently it was especially a problem at Crete, where on gravestones and on tombs, they would actually have little poems and epitaphs celebrating the heavy drinking of different people who have died. And Paul is saying, hey, you tell the older guys that they're different now. What they used to celebrate, what they used to be glorified for, is now no longer, now what they're approved for in the church is being sober, being temperate. And he goes on and he says, they're to be sound, or I'm sorry, they're to be dignified, which means living a life worthy of respect. Yes, the older is called to respect, the, or the younger is called to respect the older generation, but the Bible just as quickly turns to the older generation and says, live a life worthy of respect. Make decisions that are good, that are honorable, that are beneficial to the people around you. Order your life in a way that is obedient to God and a blessing to others. Live in a dignified way. And then he says that older men are to be self-controlled, not given over to their emotions, to their worldly lusts, but self-controlled. And they're to be sound in three things, faith, love, and steadfastness. These three things are just basic Christian traits. If you look at a Christian, what you should see is faith, Love and steadfastness, faith, this personal trust relationship with Jesus that actually shapes how someone lives. Love is an active devotion to the good of other people and steadfastness, enduring difficulty with commitment and pressing forward, not giving up, not throwing in the towel. Older men, this is the pathway of godliness according to scripture. You have not expired in your usefulness to the church, regardless of what age you are. You are necessary to the household of God to set an example for us of what it looks like to live a godly life, what it looks like to be self-controlled, what it looks like to be submitted to the Spirit of God, what it looks like to be devoted to the good of other people, to be just a sound, healthy, stable Christian person. This is the role of older men. It's necessary and needed. And honestly, the church is hungry for it. This is God's call to older men. And then he goes on to older women. Sorry, I don't know why I closed my Bible. Let's pick it up in verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. 
So Paul tells Titus to instruct older women in their role there to be reverent in their behavior, basically meaning the main consideration for how to live is to think about what honors God. It's not what I want to do, not what's beneficial for me or just my family, but what honors the Lord. That's how I'm going to live. That's what shapes my life. They're not to be slanderers. Just a little side note, that in the original language, the word there is diabolos, which if that sounds like Diablo, yeah, you're right. This is the same title that's used for Satan in the New Testament over and over and over. And to, so to speak in a way that is destructive of somebody else, to slander other people, is to line up with Satan and rejoice in what he rejoices in. Cutting other people down, degrading other people, demeaning them with words. Paul says, instruct all the women to reject that, to renounce that, to leave that behind. They're not to be slanderers, and they're not to be enslaved to much wine. Like older men, the call is to temperance, to self-control. And then finally, they're to teach younger women what is good. And he's going to get into that here in a minute. But older women have a teaching role in the church. This is a necessary function for older women to come alongside practically younger women and say, I know what life is like. I know where you're at. I've been there. Let me help you. Let me encourage you in this pathway. This is necessary because specifically as our church, we believe in male leadership according to Scripture. And while males can speak to women with authority and with love and with compassion, it's not going to land in the same way. And ladies, you know this. Like there's just things that we cannot empathize with what it means to be a wife of a difficult husband, what it means to be a mother of a child or multiple children, or what it is to be a single woman trying to just live faithfully in the season that she's in. We can't empathize in that same way. And so for older women to come alongside younger women, it's a necessary and so much more natural way to be able to train what it looks like to follow Jesus just in everyday life. You're needed. You're necessary to step alongside your sisters, love them, and encourage them. And this is what it looks like for older women to train younger women. Look at verses 4 and 5. They're to train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure. That's talking about sexual uprightness. Working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the gospel or the word of God may not be reviled. Now, just a quick note. That note on working at home don't read that as a limitation, okay? The scriptures don't clearly say only working at home. This is a clear call to be faithful in the home, though. And if you struggle with that and you're like, this sounds old and archaic and oppressive, I would encourage you just to go read Proverbs 31, where the whole poem is focused on a godly woman, a virtuous woman, and her role is pretty expansive. In fact, it's a little bit exhausting to read because she's like waking up early in the morning and she's doing all this stuff at home, but then she's going out and she's purchasing land and she's setting a good example in the community and on and on we could go. This is a freedom, but the call is to be faithful at home as, as well. And then she's to be kind as she does these things and submissive to her own husband. If that rubs you and grates you the wrong way, let me just say this. The call is never in the scriptures to the man to exert your authority and make your wife know that you're in charge. Never. Whenever the scriptures speak to men, it's to love your wife, to lay your life down for her, to serve her for her good, and to use your leadership for that end. And then whenever it speaks to women, it's, Submit yourself to the leadership that God has given you. 
And if there's a difficulty and a problem with that, then that's something to pray through and work through together with the Lord and with the people around you. But this is not a call to oppressive authority. This is a call to submit to what God has placed in your life. And then finally, Paul goes to younger men and he instructs them to be self-controlled, which is difficult enough for most young men. Uh, But then he also tells Titus to set an example. Look at 7 and 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works so younger men can look at you and see what a godly life looks like. And in your teaching, show integrity. Teach from a good motive. Be dignified. Live a life worthy of respect and use sound speech that cannot be condemned. Titus is to be an example for young men so that they look at him and they know what it looks like to follow Jesus and live a godly life. And then finally, Paul talks about how Titus is to instruct slaves. Slaves are to be submissive to their masters. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, which is not a bodily function. It's what I think of whenever I hear the word pilfer. It's stealing. Don't skim off the top of your master's goods whenever he's not looking. Be honest and show all good faith in everything that you do so that you might commend the gospel to others. I would like to get into slavery slavery in the early uh in the early history i'm sorry (laughs) but we are running out of time and so what what i'm going to do is i'm going to actually step back and say what does this mean for all of us like that list is pretty practical it's pretty straightforward my hope and my prayers that the spirit of god is at work as he's laying out the pathway for different groups of us and he's convicting and wooing us to the right path but the main thing that i want to focus on as we close is that we Show our grasp on God's grace by living a godly life of self-control. I just want to talk about that attribute of self-control because over and over in this passage, self-control is what it comes back to. Regardless of who you are, the basic Christian posture, because you've been rescued by God's grace, but you've been trained by God's grace, is to live a self-controlled life. And so there are some of us who, by God's grace, are steady in that. And by God's mercy, we've been walking with the Lord and there's not anything that we have given ourselves over to that just dominates us. Praise God for you. You have a role. I'll get to that in a second. There are others of us who we hear the word self-control and we think, oh, how I wish. And then we feel shame right away. There's some of us who do not live lives of self-control and we know it and we feel it, and we're doing everything we can to hide it away and to just try to keep it under wraps. Some of us lack sexual self-control, and so whenever I talked about pornography at the beginning, you were like, that's me. I get that. It's my story. And if you're a lady and you're sitting in this room and that's your struggle, don't believe the lie that this is only a male struggle and that you're all alone and that there's no help for you. You're always going to be stuck in this. Statistics alone show that this is not just a male struggle. And I'm sure that if we had a raising of hands, which we won't do, you would see that you're not alone. You're not. But for some of you, it's not pornography. It's same-sex attraction. And so you sit in church week after week after week wondering why this won't go away, wondering why you continue to struggle with this, feeling like a hypocrite who should just be cast out if everybody knew who you were and what you struggle with. For others of you, it's actual explicit acts of sexual sin. Looking for somebody to hook up with, going to a park late at night. I don't say any of this because I know you're junk 
and I'm trying to peg you, I say this because this is real life. Sin wreaks havoc on us. And whenever we give ourselves over to it, it's sweet at first, but then it becomes a necessity, a disgusting necessity at the end. And the merciful call of God is to step into self-control, first step, by confession. By recognizing I have got a problem. And then by confessing it to another believer as well as to the Lord. This is the necessary first step on the pathway to healing. Others of us, it's not a lack of sexual self-control. For others of us, it's a lack of control with alcohol. And so whether that is just an absolute need to always have a drink in your hand if it's going to be a good, restful day, or if you really are given over to the feeling of drunkenness and intoxication, there are those of us who are walling away in that addiction. And the same invitation is for you. Step into healing, step into the light through confession. You are not sitting in a room of perfect, all put together people. You're sitting around people who are sinful and broken and who've been given over to things just like you have been. It might not look exactly the same way, but we have all been ransomed by the grace of God. And we've all had to come before him and confess. We all receive mercy when we do so. And when we share that with each other, we're able to point to the Lord who is gracious. And then there's others of us who lack emotional self-control. And so some of us, anger just governs our lives. It is the fuel, the motor, the engine that's at the bottom of our souls. And it just spurts out every now and again in intense situations. Others of us, we wallow in self-pity and think about all the ways, poor me, poor me, poor me, and it just destroys relationships around you. Others of us struggle with emotional self-control and it leads to eating disorders. It leads to thoughts of suicide. And if you're sitting in this room and you're thinking, this guy's crazy, this is intense stuff, this doesn't go on in the church, I just want to say, wake up. Open up your eyes and get involved in the lives of people around you. This is not just out there. This is in here too. And it's the grace of God to invite us out of it. And the first step to walking in freedom is to confess. It's to say, yes, I'm a broken, sinful human being and I've given myself over to things that I no longer have the power to tame. God, help me. And then for those of us who are walking consistently in self-control, who are leading godly lives, who have practice at that, can then step alongside and say, brother, sister, Christ died for you while you were a sinner. We have the gift and the ability to come alongside one another and remind each other of the gospel and to remind each other there's a good, life-giving path to walk in, and you can walk in it. There is freedom that Christ grants us. And so I just want to give you guys, if you would say, man, I'm, just, I'm not struggling with all those other things that you just mentioned. I feel like I'm actually, by God's mercy, walking in self-control. I want to give you some verses. Because if you're not someone who needs to confess, then you should be a person who could be confessed to. Right? We play this role for each other. And so you should be able to be the kind of person who can receive a confession in the right way that points to Christ. And so I'm going to just spout a couple of verses. Romans 5, 8. Romans 5, verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
In other words, whenever Christ laid down his life, he knew what he was getting. A bunch of messed up, jacked up, addicted people who God loved and wanted to rescue. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can look across that table at the person who is feeling hopeless and in despair, and you can say, there is no condemnation for you in Christ. If your trust is in him, you are welcomed into the family of God with love. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The call is to confession, and whenever we do confess, God is right there faithful and just to cleanse us and set us free. So the first response is to point that person to God's grace. If you're receiving a confession, point that person to the grace of God in Jesus and then to follow that quickly with, let me pray for you. In James 5.16, the instruction is confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. These are the two most fundamental acts. When you receive a confession, point them to God's grace and then pray. And then finally, Practically think through how you can help them walk out of the pit they're in. You might not have all the answers, but you have the community of God's people here. We can work together and find a way forward. Whether you need to confess or you need to grow as a person who can be confessed to, the call is for all of us to grow in self-controlled, godly lives. And this isn't unrealistic. This isn't impossible. This isn't just put on a good front and keep on going. This is a call to humble transparency and honesty, clinging to the grace of God that transforms us and carries us out of that mess. So may we grow as a people who believe deeply in the grace that God has shown us through Christ, who are compelled by that grace to be transparent about our struggles, our mess-ups, our hang-ups, and who are being transformed into self-controlled people by that grace. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, you had full right to wash your hands of sinful humanity after they continued to rebel against you. And yet in love you initiated towards us and you have sent your son to give his life for ours so that we might be set free. Jesus, would you train us by your love, by your mercy, your grace, and the power that your spirit grants to live godly lives that are self-controlled. And where we lack it, grow us in confidence in your love that we might be honest. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.